Well, good morning once again, everyone, and a special welcome if you're visiting with us today. It's great to have you with us. And can I just say, isn't it wonderful, amazing how the gospel brings us all together from so many different nations uh, into one room to worship one God together. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6, is uh, a series that we're looking at at the moment from God's Word. Oh, and can I also add to, as Derek who's leading the service today, said earlier, how wonderful it is that God's provided such a beautiful day of weather for us. We're going to be having a church picnic down at Canelian Bay later on today. And can I just add my encouragement? It's a wonderful opportunity to spend time together. The children are going out now to Corner Pebbles. So if you've got young children and you'd like them to be part of that program, please join them. Okay, we're up to now. This week we come to chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verse 5 through to verse 9. We're slowing down a little bit and this is all really unpacking what the Apostle Paul means of what it looks like in practice to live filled with the Spirit of God because it utterly transforms every area of our life. Over the last couple of weeks we've been looking at how it transforms our marriages, also how it transforms our relationships as parents Um, But this week we come to the very practical topic of actually how it transforms what we do from Monday to Saturday in our our work day week as well. So I'm going to read from verse 5 through to verse 9 and this is the word of God. Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, convict us of those truths which you need each of us to hear, and Lord, give us the obedience of faith, that we would both trust what your word says and do it. Father, be with me as I speak, that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it, that it would bring glory and honour to your name and that it would bring blessing, encouragement and edification to all of us. Lord, give us ears to hear. Open our eyes to see beautiful, wonderful truths in your word and give us hearts that are eager and willing to obey. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the really big questions that you have to ask when you come to a passage like this is, is slavery in and of itself a sin? 
It's difficult, isn't it? Because we all, I think, intuitively know what the answer to that question is. Of course it is, is what we think. We've all heard of the horrendous injustices that have happened throughout the world of subjugating one people to another. We've seen movies, we've read books about the slave trade, particularly in America, and especially of the awful and abhorrent racism that was associated with it. The question we need to ask ourselves, though, friends, is, is that what the situation that the Bible is describing and responding to actually the same thing? That's a really important question because what we understand as slavery and its modern iterations of it is not necessarily the same thing that existed in the first century. You see, there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. And John Stott makes the point that many times the former or the actual slave would become wealthier than even his patron. So it was not necessarily for life, and it was not necessarily in the ancient world based on skin color uh, or anything or ethnicity. Being a slave was something that people often entered into voluntarily because it was financially advantageous. And as such, slaves constituted the majority of the workforce in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Rome. They included not only domestic servants and manual labours, but also educated people like doctors, teachers and administrators. The history or the historic institution of slavery then was, can I put it like this, and for some of us this might be shocking, for others of us actually quite humorous, it was very, very similar to our own modern-day financial system. Anyone who has taken out a loan or a mortgage with a bank will know just how much of a slave you are to them. You are indebted, often for life. It was only much later that I think this entire system became perverted to actually be include the subjugation of people from certain races, although even that historical context is convoluted and complex. In fact, and it's quite significant, the Bible itself condemns the practice of slave trading. Verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul specifically mentions it. And so while the economic system of slavery was not necessarily sinful and evil in and of itself, there were horrible corruptions of it. All of which to say, this is a word of God for us today. The correlation, I think, is really a simple one and I think a clear one. And that is the correlation between works and workers and their bosses and slaves and masters is really quite an obvious and I think legitimate parallel. And we shouldn't necessarily read into the passage modern day abuses of slavery and therefore reject it. Now, there are two distinct areas that we're going to look at today, and they're obviously got to do with, first of all, workers or slaves in verses 5 to 8. And then the second thing we're going to look at is masters or bosses in verse 9. And just like the other sets of relationships we've already looked at, husbands and wives, 
parents and children, the relationship between slaves and masters is also a reflection of the order that God desires all people within his creation throughout the history of time, throughout all of the cultures of the world to abide by and to adhere. This is a word of God for us and it continues to be so. Indeed, you think about it for a second, within the Godhead of the Trinity, we also see this kind of ordered relationship reflected where the son submits to the father But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's less than the father in any way. And the same kind of situation is for us. We can be equal in substance, but different in practice. You see, equality doesn't necessarily mean there must be equivalence. You can be equal in dignity and human worth, but different in role and function. Because as we saw back in chapter 5, being submissive is actually a practical expression of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's flip that around. Somebody that is unsubmissive, whether that be in marriage or in parenting or in the workforce, is somebody that you're seeing who is grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul says back in verse 18 that we are to not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, we are to be filled. And it's in the Greek grammar, a present continuous, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the primary ways that we facilitate or we demonstrate this is by submitting to that particular authority which the Lord has placed over us. We all have to submit at some point or another. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, and God willing, as we'll look at even next week, demons to Christians. We live in an ordered universe. That said, that doesn't mean that those who are in authority should lord it over them. Husbands, parents, and masters are all under authority themselves. Not only that, but they have a duty to use their authority to serve those who they are responsible for. That's what we've been looking at each week. At each and every point, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to, and this is the key, fulfill our responsibilities rather than to demand our rights. That's also another expression of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, we're going to turn and look at what it says to slaves. Anybody who's got a job, this is you. As you can see from verse 5, how God says we should relate to those who are placed in authority over us is really quite radical. And let me be clear, they are in authority over you. And that is a good thing. I know it's not necessarily, we sort of, our hackles rise, don't we, as Australians. Maybe it's our convict heritage or something Anybody that's in authority is somehow suspicious or suspect. No, that's God's good design. That's God's order. For we should act as though, and this is really the key insight into the whole passage. And can I say, if you apply this insight into your work life, 
Not only will your life be blessed, but it will give a profound witness to those that you work with, especially if they're not believers. And this is it. When you get up on Monday morning, you should serve whoever you work for as if you were serving Jesus, as if you were serving Christ, not men. Wouldn't that absolutely transform the workforce? If we applied that wholeheartedly, like the Apostle Paul says, that we serve those that we're employed by as if we're serving Christ. Paul says in verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. You see, it's no good, as we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, it's no good to say, oh, I love Jesus and rebel against your boss, to be slack in your work, to be belligerent in your attitude. That is a profoundly bad witness to the gospel and is completely unsubmissive. Then a little later in verse 7, he says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. What a radical, again, what a radical approach that would take to our work. Could you imagine literally in your head if you thought, on Monday morning, I'm going into work and I'm going to be serving Christ himself. What sort of attitude would, and transformation in your attitude would that make in how you spoke to your boss on a Monday morning? It'd be, it'd be profound, wouldn't it? It'd be incredible. The Apostle Paul says almost exactly the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, work for it or work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. That's the Christian approach to work. And, and it's radical, isn't it? It's radical and it's beautiful. One of the most radical insights of the Reformation was the idea that everyone served and worshipped God no matter what you did for a living. During the Middle Ages, it was increasingly thought that priests and monks and nuns, they served God, whereas everybody else financially supported them. The Protestant reformers, though, turned this idea absolutely on its head. And this was the great insight of the Reformation and I think actually needs to be rediscovered by the Protestant evangelical church today because sometimes there's this thinking amongst us that if you really love Christ, if you really serve him, then you'll go into ministry. You'll do MTS or you'll go to Bible college or anything like that. The Genesis, the, one of the great insights of the Reformation was no, you serve Christ wherever you are. You worship Christ wherever you are whether that be a teacher in the classroom or a teacher from the pulpit, whether that be serving as a deacon or whether that be serving as a nurse, you are serving and worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ and that in and of itself has inherent sacred value. Do you see? That's the Protestant work ethic. It's not that you would just simply work hard. You would work hard. Why? Because as we've already been seeing, you're working for Christ. You're in ministry wherever you are. It's one of the reasons why in the West, I'm called a minister 
But people like John O'Dunium in our own congregation is also called a minister. Why? It's the same word in Greek because we're both servants of God. We're just different spheres of responsibility. The Protestants argued that everyone was serving Christ, whether their profession was what some people would call today sacred or secular. This was the underlying biblical truth behind, as again, what I said, is the Protestant work ethic. It wasn't just about working hard and being productive. That was the fruit or the result of this way of thinking. The fundamental principle was that everything we do should be done for the glory of God. Everything we do should be done as an act of worship. That's radical. And that's what absolutely transformed the West. It's what made it so prosperous. It's what's made it so rich. Uh, It's what's made it so good. Friends, our work is also an act of our worship. What we do when we sing, yeah, we're worshipping God. What we do when we hear God's word and we pray, we're worshipping God. But when you get up in the morning and you fulfill your duties, wherever they may be, you're also worshipping God. You're serving Christ. It's an incredible truth to ponder, but when you go to work, that's what you're doing. It's not just about you and you you providing for your family. You're glorifying God in what you do and how you go about it. Well, viewing things this way completely changes things, doesn't it? It's not only that we work hard for the boss, particularly when he's around and other people are watching. Paul says in verse 6, have a look again. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. That's, again, it just goes deeper still, doesn't it? We work like this, not just to be a witness to them, but, to be, but for the unseen witness that is in heaven, who is seeing everything that we do. That's, I think, when the real test is, is when the boss doesn't see it. And we're still worshipping fervently. Because why? Because we're, we're serving Christ, who sees it all. Now, that said, there's a real risk in acting this way, isn't there? I mean, if you take this very seriously, what I'm saying. And that is, just as in any of these other roles that Paul is mentioning, whenever you submit, and it's the word that can't be spoken in today's word, but I'm going to say it again, because it's the fundamental responsibility. Whenever we submit, there is a risk that we're going to be taken advantage of. I mean, truly, if you're being submissive, that's true, isn't it? And can I say, if you don't feel the risk, then maybe you're not really submitting. Because if you're truly submitting, then there's a risk that the credit's going to go to someone else. That they might just all walk all over you. Now, have you ever experienced that? If you haven't, maybe you need to make your submission even more radical. Because it's a very real danger. You've been overlooked for a promotion because someone else has taken or been given the credit for the work which you have done yourself. You've made the team look good, but truth be known, (laughs) there's only one or two people that have done the bulk of the work. 
Or maybe it's that you continue to do a great job, but you've never been really given the respect or the appreciation which you feel like you deserve. That can be sometimes the more telling thing today, can't it? That can be a very, very difficult situation to endure. The thing that should motivate us, friends, if you're feeling that this morning, maybe your workplace is just completely unfair, then I want you to take a look at the promise God gives you in verse 8. For we need to remember that our Father in heaven not only sees everything we do, but in his own perfect timing, he's going to reward you as well. We need to hold on to the promise that God is active and that he will ultimately provide, even if in the short term it looks like we're being taken advantage of or overlooked. Verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Do you believe that promise? One of the best examples of this is Joseph, I think, in the Old Testament. Remember, there he was, sold as a slave by his own brothers. How unfair a situation is that? And if anyone had the right to become bitter or angry about their situation, surely, surely it was Joseph, wasn't it? Joseph, though, faithfully gets on with serving his master and he's put in charge of everything in the house. And then later on, he gets falsely accused of um, having an adulterous relationship with Potiphar's wife. So he gets thrown into prison unfairly. God again shows him kindness and favour and he's put in charge of everybody in the prison. And the Bible actually says, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And you can, That's wonderful. He's still in prison. He's not out of the situation. God, God's hand of blessing was on him But he was in jail. He'd still lost his freedom. But then to top it all off, after he correctly, remember, interpreted the dreams of the baker and the chief chief, um, cupbearer, and he says to them, the last line he says to them at the end of the chapter is, just remember me. Remember me when um, you, you talk to me about Pharaoh. Do you know what the next verse of the next chapter says? They forgot him. Two years later is the next part of the narrative. We don't really grasp it because it's the next verse. Two years later, here is Joseph languishing in prison, still in charge of everybody, but for all intents and purposes, it looks like he's been forgotten. It's easy, isn't it, to feel that way? You're overlooked. You think, oh, I've been forgotten here. I just have to get on, still making the company what it is. And inside that resentment starts to build. If they really knew what all that I was doing, this company would, would be over. Now, clearly, Joseph experienced more than his fair share of unjust punishment. He was overlooked. He was mistreated. He was wrongly accused over and over and over again. However, 
to his credit, you never hear actually of Joseph in Scripture complaining against God. He continues to trust the Lord and worship him. That's, that's the model here. And all of a sudden, this is the incredible thing, in the space of a single day, Joseph goes from being in charge of a prison to being in charge, second in charge, of the greatest superpower of the ancient world in one day. How amazing that God can turn his fortunes around so quickly that he can reward him for all of those faithful acts of service. And here is a, a really important principle, friends. God can do the same thing with us, but, it, but here's the thing. If you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. If you're not being faithful right now with the little that God has given you, why would he give you any greater responsibility? If you can't trust and worship him now in the situation, in the context which God has you, why would he give you anything else? Lest you turn away from him and worship that very thing. The only person that had more authority than Joseph on that day was Pharaoh. It's a great example of the spiritual principle which Jesus talks about. Those who have been proven faithful with a little will be entrusted with much. That's challenging, isn't it? To be faithful, especially if it means or it seems like we could, we could be doing, should be doing so much more. We need to be faithful because that is how God's name is glorified. And it's how he prepares us, I think, even for more significant things. Sometimes, if you look throughout Scripture, God's choicest servants do the most meaningful labor. It teaches us something. It forms in us something like humility, perseverance, faithfulness and in those, in, with integrity on those little areas. Like David, who was a shepherd before he became a king. Now, shepherds, by the way, we might think of them as all noble. There were only three people in the ancient world that couldn't give evidence in a court of law. Slaves, women, and shepherds. And yet who does God seek to honor over and over and over again? Those three people. Oh, and children. We need to be more faithful. We need to be faithful because that is how God's name is glorified and that's how he prepares us for more significant and important things. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Here's a good verse for you if you want something practical to hang your hat on today. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. You know what it's saying to us? Whatever you do, whatever you do for work, do it for the glory of God and grow in your skill of it. Don't think that anything is underneath you or beneath you. The Lord sees and hears everything we go through, the injustices, the hardships, everything. And so rather than give up and become despondent, we should entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. He sees, he hears, he responds. More than that, we should submit to our employers out of reverence and respect for Christ. It's actually something which the Apostle Peter goes into great lengths in 1 Peter chapter 2. We could stop here, but I really want to just go one step further because he exhorts 
the slaves to submit to their masters with respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And the reason we're to do this is, again, we're following in the footsteps of Christ. The gospel itself is our model. It's what it means to take up our cross and follow him. For how Jesus responded to unjust suffering is precisely how we should respond as well. And trusting ourselves to God. And and can I say, here's the key, not retaliating in any way. Now, can I say, obviously that doesn't mean that not valid appeal processes. Obviously there are. We thank God for them. But can I say there's a, there's a, a really important principle here. And that is, that doesn't mean you should try to get out of every single work situation just because it's hard. Hard doesn't mean bad. It could be the very thing God is using to make you a better servant of Christ. Again, can I say that I'm not saying don't appeal for unjust circumstances. Yes. But there's a word here for for us all, isn't there? To endure. To honour Christ in our unjust circumstance. Indeed, sometimes it's going to be, and this is hard for me to even say to you, it's going to even mean for some of us to suffer in an unjust workplace. Like Joseph did. To bring glory to God's name. Now, I know there are some of us here who have had to endure this kind of wrongdoing. But the biggest lesson that we can do is to be patient. To wait. To not try and get back. God sees. He will reward And we also know he will punish. Wait for the Lord's timing. Resist the temptation to try and vindicate yourself. For the Lord sees everything that happens and scripture promises he will reward our faithfulness. There is a master in heaven to whom all masters here on earth have to give an account. Now that leads us to the second area. And it's the responsibility of masters. There are significantly, there's only one verse which is addressed to them. Interesting, isn't it? What Paul says to masters, though, is to remember that they also have a master over them. Once again, everyone has to submit to authority at some point, either in this life or the next. Submission itself is not the issue. Submission itself is a virtue and a godly one at that. The problem is our sinful heart which constantly seeks to rebel against the authority which God has placed over us. And even though you might be the head of uh, an organisation, you need to remember that there is a God in heaven who is a head over you. And as such, you will be directly answerable to God for how you treat those who work under you. Verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. One commentator I was reading put it it this way. 
uh, I was, one commentator rather, I was reading this week, puts it like this. He says, in order to deal with their slaves, owners were known to threaten beatings, sexual harassment or selling male slaves away from their households with the result that they would be parted forever from their loved ones. But the Bible clearly says masters are not to give in to that kind of temptation. There is a symmetrical relationship of submission that even masters need to be aware of. That is, just like their employees, employers should have their attitudes and actions shaped by their relationship to God in heaven. It doesn't mean that the slave couldn't be punished. Sometimes people make the conclusion that because they, I think they have a simplistic view of God, they think of him as only being merciful and not just just. If a slave or an employee, for that matter today, does something wrong, then there should be consequences. Um, if an, an employer has, is well within their rights and Christian responsibilities to do so. I've heard of too many Christian bosses that have almost gone broke because of the behaviour of the people they've employed. What this verse is forbidding, though, is manipulating, demeaning, or terrifying those who work for you. That is what's to be rejected. If you're in a position of authority, then you are to treat those who work for you in the same way that God himself treats them. The law of Moses has some particularly helpful things to say in this regard. Uh, Deuteronomy 24. It says this, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. The book of James says the same thing. Chapter 5 verse 4, the Holy Spirit says, Look! The wages you failed to pay your workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God also sees and hears. You see, once again, we need to remember that the Lord sees and hears everything, as Derek reminded us at the start of the service. He knows if we are being just and fair, and he will hold us responsible if we are not. I worked with um, a guy once who was just horrible at paying you on time. It was terrible because obviously no one wanted to work for him and he basically became more and more alone. Uh, it's just a matter of integrity and justice to pay people for their work, isn't it? And if we don't, the Bible says that the Lord Almighty will personally hold us to account. Both employers and employees, then, are to be conscious of the Lord. If you're a worker, work as if you're working for Christ. You are to be diligent and faithful and conscientious, respectful. If you're an employer, then you're to treat your worker just as you would like Christ to treat you. You're to obey him just as God calls on them to obey you. Treat them with appreciation and respect. Don't demean them or put them down. For at the end of the day, our work, our work is an expression of our worship. 
the people around us should see the significant difference that we make in our jobs and in the attitude that we bring to our jobs. Tim Keller tells the story of a woman in his church who became a Christian through the witness of her boss. She had uh, made a pretty significant mistake in her role at work, but rather than making her look bad, uh, he actually protected her from the wrath of his supporters or superiors. When she approached him and asked him why he had done this, he was a little reluctant at first, but he eventually told her that it was because he was a Christian and he believed that that's what Christ wanted him to do in this situation. As a result of his actions, she started coming to church and subsequently became a Christian. Why? Because his work was an act of his worship. It was just so radically different to how anyone else around her, she said, would have responded. Never underestimate, friends, the witness for good or for evil that our witness in the workplace can have. I can't tell you how many times when I was in my first congregation in country New South Wales, how many people in the community I would talk to about Jesus would say, oh yes, I know about your church. They're lovely good Christians on a Sunday, but they're hard businessmen come the rest of the week. People are always watching. After all, it's the environment that we spend most of our time in, isn't it? It's where our faith is lived out and as such, our witness to Christ is best displayed. That's not often how we think about work today, is it? What we've looked at from God's word. We often see it as a, a chore or as a burden. But did you notice from our Old Testament reading, it's part of the new heavens and the new earth? Work is not a curse. <laughs> Work is something that, that is good. When Adam was put in the Garden of Eden to work and tend for it, do you know those same Hebrew words are used of the priest when he works and tends in the temple? It was his act of worship. Work was there in the garden and it will be there in the new heavens and the new earth as well. It's all we've been created to do. When you see work as simply a burden, now it has been affected by the fall, and subject to frustration. But whenever you don't see the intrinsic good that work is, you're not really seeing the purpose and design of Almighty God. But most of all, as you go to work on a Monday morning, don't be filled with dread, but rather the aim to glorify the Lord. It's not man that you're serving, or woman as the case may be. It's the Lord Jesus. And if you're in any kind of authority over other people, seek to treat people in the same way that Christ treats you. Could your workers say of you, I see Christ in them? They should. They should. Don't just be kind and considerate to those you like or to those that you think that are worthy because with God there is no favoritism. Be gracious. Be merciful. Think about how Christ would have you speak and act. And most of all, pray for the people who work for you. 
take an interest in their lives and demonstrate genuine love and concern. Friends, is there a boss at the moment that is just really, really testing you to your limits? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for God's blessing upon them? Not just for their removal, (laughs) but do you pray that their marriages might be enriched, their families might be better, that their business might even go better? It's a radical attitude that Christ is calling on us, isn't it? We can do it, though, because that's how God in Christ Jesus, first of all, treated us. So, friends, let's be radical in our discipleship and have our workplaces transformed and shaped and empowered by the gospel. Wouldn't it be amazing if people in Hobart and beyond knew that you attended church here and that you were different, radically, profoundly different, because you worshipped Christ and they saw Christ in you, whatever context Christ has called you in to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you as the true and living God. We look at your word and it is truth. We thank you that you have spoken to us through it this morning. We want to pray, Lord, that you will remind us of these truths throughout the week. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for where we have failed you as either workers or as bosses. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would live radically transformed lives because of the gospel. That we would seek to serve and bless those that don't deserve it because that is how you have first treated us. Lord, fill us all and empower us by your Holy Spirit to put these words into practice. Give us wisdom to apply your word in our lives. And may we do it for the glory of your holy name. We pray it in Jesus. Amen.